Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Post Survivor. My name is Kelly Rush and I am going to be your host on this um, potentially strange, wild, um, hopefully enlightening, uh, healing journey. I wanted to begin this very first episode um, by going back to the very beginning. I'm going to be talking a lot about faith, spirituality, God, the Bible. And so I wanted to just begin where it all begins in Genesis. Um, first, a little background on me. I have been on what I like to call um, a 10-year journey to try to figure out, find, discern, get to know who God really is. What is this being? I was raised in um, what I would consider a fundamentalist, um, evangelical Christian church and household. Um, and I am also a childhood sexual abuse survivor. Um, and my abuser held um, a position of authority in the church where I grew up. That person was an elder. And so Christianity and abuse have been inextricably entwined for me. So when I came back to faith 10 years ago, because I, I pretty much left probably from the time I was really in high school. I just didn't really believe anything anymore. But I came back um, about 10 years ago. And when I came back, it was like everything that I had been taught, everything that I believed kind of came back with the faith. So I knew I had to go through a process. If I was going to believe in God, I was going to have to separate out everything I had been taught that was wrong, everything that would have been used to prop up and affirm my abuser, everything that portrayed God in a way that just seemed to reject me and everything that I was. So after 10 years, um, I'm at a point where I just really want to start sharing what I know because I feel like what I've discovered, it might seem um, like some of these revelations are kind of small, but they're not. The knowledge that I feel like I've come into, which God has revealed to me, um, which God would reveal to anyone if they asked, but the knowledge that I've, I've come into has really started to give me incredible freedom over the way that I was raised and what was taught to me. Um, and I feel like I just want to share that because so many people who are like me, who have been raised in these um, belief systems and in these structures, you know, it's like you can, you can turn your back on that. You can walk away from it. But so often these beliefs are just, they're still there. They're kind of lying, you know, dormant, or they're, they live in a place in your heart 
that maybe you can't access or you don't even realize that those beliefs are still there. But as long as the belief is there, it's still influencing you. It still has power over you. So I want to share some of these things that I've learned because I've been finding a lot of freedom and I just want to share that. So with that, um, I want to get into it, okay? I'm going to be reading from the Bible. I'm, I'm going to be breaking this down. And I'm excited um, because I haven't had an opportunity to do this yet. And that's the beauty of the podcast format. Anyone, anyone with a, a microphone and some uh, maybe some editing software too. I don't know. Also, I just want to state up front uh, what I may lack here in production values because I don't have expensive equipment. I hope to make up for in heart. So if you'll just excuse um, blips or the occasional semi rattling down the street that sort of takes over my voice, oh, please forgive me. Okay, so here we go. Um, we're talking about the Garden of Eden because traditionally in Christianity, the Garden of Eden is the place where sin uh, supposedly enters into the picture and because Adam and Eve sin, they have to be expelled from God's presence because God supposedly can't be around sin. He can't be around mistakes. He can't be around any kind of evil. And so as you're taught in the Orthodox tradition, because Adam and Eve sin, they're the ones who bring sin into the picture. It's, it's all their fault. And because they've done this, and because God is a holy God, they have to be expelled, ejected from the Garden of Eden. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. I'm going to start off here in Genesis 2, verse 15 through 17. And I'm just working out of the New King James Version. Um, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Okay. I'm hearing a setup here. Okay, we've got these two people, and they've been put in a perfect garden, and everything around them is good. And they can eat of anything, but not this one tree. Why? Well, we're not told why. It's the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And you just can't eat it. Because if you do, well, you're going to die. And you, that phrase, shall surely die, in the Hebrew, it actually means to be put to death by God, specifically as a punishment. So this is the first place where we're being introduced to a God who cannot be around disobedience. Anybody who disobeys not only gets punished, but the threat is punishment of death. Now, let's just compare this to, like, say, a family, and you've got a toddler, 
if you put the toddler in the candy store and you point out, okay, this stuff is all really good, but this one particular piece of candy and you show it to this toddler, especially, you point it out, you're like, this candy? You can't have this candy. Um, and if you do eat this candy, I'm going to kill you. Okay, so just like for some context, you know, uh, sometimes when you treat writings as too sacred and they can't be questioned, it's like you can't even allow yourself to consider. Just just listen to that for a second. Listen how listen to how crazy that sounds. Like no no parent would ever do that. That's insane, right? But if these writings are sacred and they have to be interpreted literally, then then God is literally saying this. Okay. This is where I'm going to introduce shame. Shame specifically targets your will. And let me tell you, I know a lot about shame because of my background and because of what I've been through. Shame has been my greatest enemy from day one. And so I've been studying this enemy in every possible way, shape, and form. And I want to suggest right here that this is the voice of shame. If you disobey... I'm going to kill you. If you make a wrong choice, if you make a mistake, I'm going to kill you. So what shame does is it loves to target your will. Your will is like the decision maker part of you. Um, your will is what decides what you're going to do. Are you going to obey or are you going to disobey? So what shame does is you make your choice and it comes in and it targets your will, this decision that you've made, and it says that is an immoral choice. Shame is very much a religious spirit. It's always um, speaking with uh, the so-called authority of God to condemn mistakes, disobedience, or so-called bad behavior. So shame comes in and it says, if you make this mistake, if you make the wrong choice, I'm going to kill you. Why death? Because that's, that's a pretty big, that's a pretty big threat. Why do you have to die? You know, why does somebody have to die for this? Okay, why? Because shame is the great eviction artist. Everything that shame is about is to evict you from something that has been given to you by God. If you're in the garden, shame wants to remove you. If you're in a family, shame wants to kick you out. If you're in a job, shame wants to get you fired. If you're in a relationship that's good, shame wants to get you out of that because its whole goal is to use morality and the cloak of the authority of God to evict you from everything that is rightfully yours, including your home and your very body. So these two have been set up from the very beginning that if they make a mistake, they're going to be punished with death and by God himself. So I see two people who are in a place where a trap has been laid for them, 
Okay, so let's see what happens with that trap. We're going to turn to Genesis 3, 1 through 6. So here we are, Genesis 3, um, 1 through 6. This is the temptation and fall of man. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, which she adds, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Okay, just, just a quick question here. Um, the serpent deceives Eve. Let me ask you, were these two people trained to expect deception? You know, did the Lord God ever pull them aside and say, you know, there is this, there's this serpent out there and he's really bad news and he wants to trick you. So you have to be aware of that. Like, I'm going to prepare you because, you know, this thing is out there and, um, yeah, he, he's going to lie to you. Okay. But of course that never happened. So you have these two completely innocent, naive people and they get tricked by this thing because they have no concept of a lie. They don't understand, like no one's, no one's told them, like, um, there's something out there, you know, that could deceive you and lie to you and you have to be on your guard. So, um, you know, if that was a real threat in the environment, uh, do you think maybe God could have told them? I don't know, just, just food for thought, okay? Next, uh, when their eyes are opened, suddenly they know that they're naked. And so they sew fig leaves to cover themselves. That word coverings in Hebrew, it means um, a loincloth or a belt or a girdle. Um, this is underwear, folks. Uh, also, interestingly, can also be referred to as armor. Wow, that's really interesting. So when they are discovered in their disobedience, they cover their reproductive parts because they believe that their very fruitfulness, the place where children come from, is bad and cursed because shame loves to target very specifically your sexuality. Why sexuality is symbolic of bearing fruit, you know, uh, reproducing, becoming 
abundant, how are you supposed to increase in number if the very part of your being involved in sexuality is bad and shameful? So that's what shame targets. So they make themselves these coverings. And also, this covering can also be referred to as armor. What does that sound like? It's like the armor that we use to cover our vulnerability, right, from shame. Anything that might be weak, anything that we think ought to be private, anything that we don't love, we want to cover it. You know, we're ashamed of what it is, what it looks like, what it sounds like. And when you're dealing with shame, you want to hide. I think the great battle from day one is not sin. It's not mistakes. And it's not between us and God. It's between us and shame. Shame moves in to get between these two people and God. You know, shame, shame doesn't hang out in the background. Um, it's always, it's, it's, its main goal is to step in between you and God so that you see shame and you can't see God. It wants to tell us that we're bad. It wants to tell us we're unworthy of belonging. It wants to say that everything that we are, everything that we're composed of, the substance of us from the inside out is bad. And because these two people, you know, have already been set up from the very beginning to expect punishment if they do something wrong, well, what happens? You know, it's like they know that they transgressed the law. And if you transgress the law, they've been told that they have to be punished. If you eat, you shall surely die. Let me rephrase that. If you eat of the wisdom and knowledge of God, I'm going to kill you. What's the knowledge of God? Why would shame say this? If you eat of the wisdom and knowledge of God, because this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can tell the difference between what is right and what is wrong. What's the knowledge of God? You are made in God's image and you are good as you are, imperfections and all, because you're made inherently, you're not, you're not made of, um, I don't even know what's perfect. Like you're made of flesh and blood. You're made of dust. Your body was never meant to be perfect. You are not meant to be perfect. You can wound your skin. You can cut off a limb. Your heart can be injured. What is perfection? I mean, perfection, according to Orthodox Christianity, is apparently a heart that's made of Teflon. It can't be wounded because the wounded heart, the injured heart, is what expresses 
all kinds of problems in the world, and that's not allowed. The heart that loves is the heart that can be wounded. Only a real flesh and blood heart could love. A heart that is made in total, absolute perfection can't love because the same capacity that allows you to be wounded, that care, that dignity that's built into you is the same heart that gets hurt. It's, in, it's, it's unavoidable. This heart, this flesh and blood heart isn't perfect and it's not supposed to be. It's not supposed to be Teflon. It's supposed to be flesh. And you know what? It's good. What you are, the substance of what you are is good. It's good. Everything that God created, he goes through the garden, you know, with like this paintbrush. He's just declaring it. It's good. It's good. It's good. Everything he makes is good. You know, the reason why we have these gorgeous sunsets, you know, there's, there's dust in there. <laughs> there's stuff in there getting kicked up. You know, it's not pure oxygen. Our atmosphere is made up of all different kinds of gases, and we've got dust, and we've got organic matter, and all these things come together to create something of indescribable beauty. It's not supposed to be perfect. It's the, the sunset isn't supposed to perfectly obey God, and that's what makes it deserving of existing. The sunset deserves to be here just because it exists, however it's composed. I was told recently um, by uh, a Christian woman, um, she was telling me, about her her theories on um, sexuality and in particular um, what church should be as a place for those who she called sexually immoral, um, which includes gay people. And um, her quote was, church should be a safe place for gay people to struggle. And I really thought about that, you know, um, what? And I'm not gay, but I have been treated like my sexuality is polluted because of what I've been through, just like gay people are treated in the church, that their sexuality is polluted. And so the only choice for people like us is to somehow cut off that part of ourselves, come in, struggle in front of everybody while they conform us to whatever we are supposed to be in their eyes. But we are what we are, and we will never be what they think we should be. So the only thing that remains to do is struggle. <laughs> you know what? I think that's just total shit. Church should be a place where you come to be affirmed. It should be a place where whatever you are, whatever version of sunset, 
whatever version of sunrise, whatever substance you are composed of is affirmed. You know, when I get into the presence of God, there's one thing that God wants me to know, and that is I'm loved. I'm loved. Whatever you are, Kelly, you're loved. What do you need to, to know today, Kelly? You're loved. To the depths of your being, you're loved. Well, let's return to the garden for a second, shall we? So after these poor people make their um, coverings and uh, um, I guess they're acceptable now and they can be in the presence of God because their shame has been covered um, by leaves, um, we see shame comes because when you do something you think is wrong, what, come, what comes walking through the door? Shame. So shame comes posing as the high priest here. It poses as the Lord God, the high priest to mete out punishment. Of course, but if you read this text literally, you're going to have to see shame as God. So then we see a series of curses. Um, the Lord God curses the serpent. Man is cursed. Woman is cursed. The very ground is cursed. And these two people are, are kicked out. You know, they have to leave. And that's tragic. But listen, it's like, look at the character of the thing that is speaking to you. Look at the character of this, the portrayal of this voice. It's cursing. It's setting a trap. And when these two naive people fall into the trap, it's kicking them out. Look, this is the character of shame. This is not the character of God. God doesn't set you up. God doesn't lay a trap. God doesn't prohibit something. He doesn't block something off from you. That's good. And when you make a mistake, he doesn't blame you for bringing sin into the world because guess what? That serpent was already there. The serpent, full of lies and deception and everything evil, was already there. It came to them. How did they bring it into the world if the serpent slid in on his own? Adam and Eve didn't bring sin into the world. It was already present. <laughs> yeah, it was already present. So now these people... Are cursed because they agreed with shame. Shame has a proposition for you. Um, you can say yes or you can say no. Shame says you made a really big mistake. That was really bad. You know, you made the wrong choice um, and now you need to be punished. And if you agree with that, it's like you either affirm shame's role in your life or you allow it to come in. If it's already there, it's already operating. It's like you simply continue to affirm, I'm bad, I'm bad, I made a mistake, I deserve shame, I'm bad. But you have a choice. You know, you can say, the heart that fears punishment 
hasn't been perfected in love. You can say, you know what? I am flesh and blood. I'm good as I am. How I was created is good. That mistake is just a mistake or whatever it is. And at the end of the day, it is my right to be affirmed in the love of God for every last part of me. Every last part of me has a right to be affirmed in the love of God. And also, why is it that the tree of life, you know, we've got a tree of life in here too. We have the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil, and then you have a tree of life. What is the tree of life other than God? The tree of life is God. If they reach out to take the tree of life and find God in all of this, the whole thing falls apart. If, if the man and the woman look around shame to try to find God, if they reach out for the tree of life, they're going to find God. And then the whole trap just kind of it, it falls apart. So what does shame need to do? We got to get them out of the garden quick. Get them out. And the verse literally says, he drove out the man and then put a cherubim and a sword at the entrance to guard the way. Well, what is the sword? Shame loves to use God's word as a sword against us. You know, he loves to cherry pick you know, pick out little pieces here and there from the Bible to condemn us, right? That's all, that's what that sword is. It was flaming, turning every which way to prevent them from coming back in to the presence of God. All shame wants to do is condemn us and block us from coming back to the place of love, belonging, acceptance, and affirmation. From the beginning, shame is posing as God or his appointed high priest to condemn us for our own flesh and blood reality and block the way to his heart. And we think this is the voice of the Father. And that's the true tragedy. If you have to look at this Bible as the literal word of God, you will miss every beautiful, wild, hopeful, powerful truth that God has for you. People who cling to literalism are trying to relieve the great terror of responsibility of coming in to this wild and free place and using their own God-given discernment, understanding, their own conscience, you know, we've all been implanted with a conscience. 
we have a natural understanding of what's right and wrong, and we can't use that. We're being blocked from coming into this place and partnering with the Holy Spirit to understand what this word says. And if you have to read this literally, you'll never be able to hear the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is free. The Holy Spirit is wild. You cannot box this thing in. You can't create doctrines and lay them out on your website. We believe this, 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 and this. And so therefore, we feel safe. The Holy Spirit doesn't work like that. You're going to, uh, I don't know, conform the wind? You're going to put it in a box and you're going to tell it which way it's supposed to blow? Right, because when you create your doctrines and when you have your lists and you have your theology, you can feel pretty safe. You can develop a sort of certainty. I'm good. I'm following the rules. I'm doing what it says. But when you do that, you literally block God from talking to you. Because everything he's trying to say to you has to come up against this wall of your theology. So often, it's like, you know, I come into reading this thing, and I don't know what I'm going to find. I don't know what I'm going to find. But God has a way of speaking to my heart. And when you receive revelation from God, it's like the, the lid is lifted off of the truth and it rises up like, like steam out of a pot. And when you receive the truth, a weight lifts off of you. When you read the original version, the Orthodox version, the story in the garden, do you feel free? Do you feel like a weight has been lifted off of your shoulders? Or do you feel like, Oh, shit. You know, um, I can be thrown out of everything that I care about if I make a mistake. And just don't even think about Jesus down the road. Um, right here, this stuff, when you're taught this from the very beginning, it sets the tone for everything that happens after. If you believe this is the Father you're never gonna have a right understanding of who God is. You're never gonna understand the depths of his mercy and his grace. You're gonna be conditioned to see and hear the voice of God as one who is looking for a mistake in order to throw you out. And man, that's tough. That's a tough way to go through life. That's a, that's a tough way to go through faith. And I just, I'm not going to do it. So I had to, I had to make a decision that I was going to let the scriptures, that I was going to let the word of God be what it is, whatever it wants to be. And um, to hell with it. <laughs> oh, man. I guess... Um, you know, the same, the same wild world where you can get hurt, you know, the same wild world where I could grow up in that kind of environment. 
where people can make choices. They can do incredibly hurtful things. They can crush your heart. That same wild world is the place where incredible beauty and acceptance and affirmation can be found. So do you want to live in a world where you can be ejected from everything you love and care about if you make a mistake? And by the way, not just a mistake, but a mistake born of deception. You were deceived, you know? They, they set a trap for you. Do you want to live in a world where you can lose everything because you made a mistake? Or do you want to live in a world where God would never do that to you? God would never do that to you. You're welcome. He wants you to be in his presence. He wants to affirm your inherent value and your worth, your flesh and blood weakness, your flesh and blood heart. He just wants to affirm you from inside out, every last part of you. And my hope is that if you grew up like me, um, being forced to view God as this kind of person who cannot tolerate sin, which is kind of funny because if God can't tolerate sin, then how did the serpent um, come into the picture in the first place? That serpent would have been barred, right? Anyway, if God can't tolerate sin, man, or mistakes, what, what, what is sin? It's just a silly religious term for missing the mark or not, not being perfect. If God can't tolerate imperfections, we're all fucked. It's over. It's over, you know? And, and I'm just, I'm never going to live like that. Because I don't have to. And neither does anyone else. So, um, at this point in my life, in my journey, my greatest desire is just freedom. Freedom to go where I want, do what I want, be who I am. You know, do things I love with the people I love in the places that I love. Because you know what? Um, there's a verse in the Bible that says, uh, God does whatever he pleases. I think it's Psalm 115. Um, you know, you're a free person. You're a free person. And if you have something good in your heart and you want to express it, you don't need anybody's permission. You can just go do it. Um, so with that, I just pray you find whatever freedom you're looking for. I'm looking for freedom. I have, have a great deal more of it than I did in the past. I'm still throwing away garbage beliefs. I'm still throwing away tough stuff. I'm still redeeming it. I'm still bringing it back in. I'm still integrating it. It's just a process. I'm more free today than I was yesterday, and that's my hope for everybody else. So my, uh, my exhortation to you is, may you go in peace and find freedom.